Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Today's quite an interesting episode. Um, you know, we don't touch too much on property. We sort of we sort of talk about a lot of things, a lot of mindset, a lot of finding investors is probably the biggest theme in this podcast. So that is obviously property, but we don't do the traditional kind of going through deals and numbers and things like that. But we do talk heavily about raising finance because Stuart has raised, are you ready for this? 21 million pounds in a year. Uh, and he won an award for that. So if you're looking to raise 21 quid or 21,000 or any amount of money, this is the podcast for you. Uh, he also talks about being incarcerated, as they say in America. So, I mean, this this is honestly like an episode of EastEnders, but with with a million times more value in it. Because that has no value in it. So I really enjoyed this podcast. And there's a, there's a few warnings, you know, and a few lessons and failures that I think are going to help you all shape your goals and visions and the things you're doing. So here we go with Stuart. But before that, if anyone is looking for a passive investment or even an earn and learn investment, let me know. I'm offering strong interest rates, uh, usually over 12 month periods. So if you know someone who just wants to put some money away and make it make a lot more money than the bank, get in touch. Stuart, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you, Tej. It's an absolute pleasure to be in your company finally it is um and i think for everyone listening i think this has taken four months to organize or five months i think it's um you are a very busy man so um <laughs> let's let's get into it now so for, for people who may not recognize you say from facebook or social media like i guess let's start with what are you doing like sort of right now and then let's then go back in time and start at i don't know however many years ago and then talk about how you got into what you're doing now yeah sure absolutely um so so currently um my key focus if we, if we could put it like that is i work with individuals and and businesses who want to build uh, an investor circle that's what we term it it's where it's a private group of people that invest in you specifically and that can range from you know, typically three hundred thousand. Um, to a project that we've got on at the minute, which is a £30 million uh, investment raise. And that becomes your your fund, your money to spend, allows you to go out and um, buy effectively, you know, gives you money in your pocket. And um, it links into your vision, your drives, your team, uh, and collectively they work together. So it saves you having to go out and see uh, raising money as an afterthought. Hmm. Okay, I like that. And I think... That is definitely something we're going to touch on, the the raising angel finance. So then, like, before you got into property, what were you doing? And then what got you into property? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I got into property really early, uh, and I, I was only ever been in property. So I... <sighs> it's going to sound bizarre, but I left school and uh, went to work at the age of 13, um, purely because I'd... I just weren't getting on at school. I weren't getting on at home. And just to give it some context, you know, it sounds like, how did you leave home at 13? My 
my parents had both been at some point in their lives through, you know, an orphan system or uh, my dad was born into an orphan, never knew any of his family. Uh, my nan, you know, my grandparents, my nan was in an orphanage. And uh, so so when I said at 13, you know, I'm leaving home, um, it was like, off you go, <laughs> off you pop. And, it, you know, it was the it was the sort of like late 70s, early 80s as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a different world is a different era. But. I went to work. I went to work on a building site. Um, I slept on a building site, you know, to sleep in a cement shed. Um, I, I lived, breathed and just was all about building. I, I went on to do uh, odd carrying, brick laying, and then I had a carpentry apprenticeship. So that was it. I was effectively in it. And, you know, my, my stepdad was a, a property developer and a builder as well. So it was around me, you know. Mm. And, you know, what do you think that taught you? that you maybe use today because it sounds it doesn't sound easy whatsoever I mean sleeping on a cement shed sounds like a bad back to me but like what do you think you learned from that kind of really rough and physically rough experience that you kind of use today uh, I, I learned that cement sheds are really warm <laughs> that, was, that was something that I found um I, yeah I, I slept wherever I could friends beds you know uh, it soon ran out but you get the idea I slept wherever I could uh, what I what I suppose looking back learned was uh the drive um how to identify opportunities how to I'm going to say like in the crudest terms negotiate your way through life um, how to one of the biggest things uh, I've identified recently is I learned how to fail and appreciate it and then succeed from that grow from there um, and and yeah and, and have drive uh, you know the, that drive to one a roof over your head is huge is how I had ended up building a significant portfolio from sleeping anywhere I could to when I was 27 I had a significant portfolio um, and that was built from the drive of wanting to be um, safe secure have my own place mm. and then so when it came to like getting into being like right I'm gonna invest and buy properties myself how did you like how did you fund that at the start was it through savings yeah no in, in, initially I was uh, I was in, in an era where it was um, the right to buy scheme was just you know, coming into its into its own in, back in the 80s. And I effectively bought a property because my mum had been a council tenant um, and then I bought one in my name. Um, and naive as this sounds and as crazy as this might come across, I phoned up my mortgage broker when I bought my first flat and said they didn't take my deposit. And he's like, what deposit? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a scheme where your deposit is effectively your discount. I was like, whoa, whoa, okay. So I got 50% off the property because I was a, you know, a council tenant, if you like. Uh, and my mum had been a council tenant for many years. So the mortgage paid the other 50%. And then something was just, it was just going around in my head that I'm missing a trick. You know, I'd spent a long time not being able to get a house and then I just bought one for no money. Uh, and then I was like, okay, this is interesting. Like there's something I'm missing here. And then it was maybe a couple of days in, and it just dropped. And I was just like, wow, I can buy properties around this area. And I lived in a really good area for buying properties, Westminster, um, you know, Harrow Road, Edger Road, Labrook Grove, St. John's Wood. Um, yeah, I realized that you could buy them without putting any money down. And that's what I started to do. I went 
round to people that I'd known all my life. I grew up within a multicultural area and, you know, I loved that area. And what I'd heard from a lot of the friends' mums was they'd love to, what they term, go back home and build a property, go back home and retire. And, uh, yeah, so I just spoke to them and just, you know, at that time said, if I put this in, I buy the property, I'll give you some money, I'll give you your share, you know, of it um, in cash or, you know, not actual physical cash, but you get the idea, you know, to transfer it so you can go and spend it. And that's how I started to build it. That's it. That, I bought a few of those with people um, and I built a portfolio up with it. And also the opportunity for others to go and live how they wanted to live and build their dream home or buy their dream flat. Uh, and that's what I did. I partnered with people that wanted to uh, execute their right to buy. And um, yeah, that was it. That's how I got up and running. Wow. Now, Westminster, for anyone who's not from London, is like zone one. And it's right now, it's obviously ludicrously expensive to live in. Yeah. Um, multiple millions for like a shed. So when you <laughs> when you were buying houses there, how much were they? So when I first started, I was buying them with the discount for around about 80,000. What? That yeah. is. Yeah. How long ago was this? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not very good at dates, but... Uh... Put, to give it some context, so it was a bit about 80, 89, yeah, 80, 80, 89, 1991 through that era. Um, and, and yeah, and I'll come on to share with you in a bit when I started to sell them. Uh, they were just, yeah, ridiculous prices. That is, so, so you kind of started doing what I guess we're all kind of doing now, which is borrowing money, paying them a rate, giving them a share, whatever it was. They yeah. win, you win, you get the asset, they get money, which is, is yeah. interesting because you, you, you just said you just asked people. You didn't, it wasn't like, ah, oh, here's my investment plan, here's this. You just asked oh. people, right? So when you built up this portfolio, like what was the, like, like was there a kind of goal? Was it like, right, I need 10 of these and I'm going to retire? Or how did you then like grow and, and stop or carry on? Yeah, I think I have to, consider this looking back because at the time I was just hungry to buy property um it was effectively what all I knew you know I was a, a builder effectively so I needed to uh secure secure myself I didn't never want to be homeless again I didn't want to be I didn't want to be in that position the driver was I didn't want to be in a position where I'm throwing a stone up at a friend's window and you see the light go out you know because like they don't want you to stay there on the couch again it's a bit like that feeling is you know that that stays with you and you don't want to be a, a pain to other people and and, and I've done that for a few years as a, as a teenager so the minute I got my foot in the door I was hungry and I wanted to you know looking back I realized now that was my driver so I just carried on I just carried on um accumulating whatever money I got, I put it back into it. You know, I, it wasn't a case of living an amazing lifestyle. I was just like, I'm going to, I'm just going to stack this up. And I did. And that's, that's exactly what I did. I just accumulated. I didn't, I didn't have a plan. I just, it was an autopilot, you know, and I didn't properties. Then I didn't know it was uh, service accommodation. I didn't think it was HMOs. I just Use the house however I needed to to make sure that that mortgage got paid and some some profit came off it and make sure that whoever was in that house was happy and and sometimes it was students sometimes it was families that you know in some cases these guys when I was doing Halsden um, were coming over and they were riding mopeds and delivering pizzas you know they but there was a few of them in that family and just letting them all stay in the flat and that's effectively 
some form of a HMO, effectively. What happened is they ended up living in the building. Uh, and, and it was just that kind of whole momentum, if you like, you know. Mm. That's interesting to hear kind of what it was like so long ago, because just hearing these prices and hearing the kind of you were on autopilot, like obviously you wouldn't do that anymore, but it, it still got you to where you are and still built up on that foundation that you'd built up before. So you got these properties, cheap, rented them out. Uh, what, like you, you mentioned before, you sold some or sold them all. Like what was your process for selling them? And like, how much did you sell them for if you bought them at sort of just under 100K? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a twist how they come to sell. I had no intention of selling. Uh, my my objective was uh, secure, hold them. Uh, some of them I would remortgage because they were, you know, they were they were growing at a rapid rate, and I would pull some money out and maybe buy some others. But good rental return. You know, I had gone from struggling t- to survive to having serious amounts of money coming in. Um, you know, I'm gone from uh, seventeen looking to find a squat. Um, to now I'm 25, 26 and, um, you know, I've got a significant portfolio. So how I come to sell them was a a chain of events that, um, taught me a big lesson. So I, I effectively was, I had a building firm, so I was doing lots of refurbs and my own, I built up a portfolio. I had good relationships across areas of Maidervale, St. Johnswood, Victoria, Harlesden, those sort of areas, Labrador Grove, uh, good good connections in with agents you know they like the buying power and people that wanted to come in and put money in and work me it just it just worked well and and almost like naturally um and then i decided that i was raising a lot of money through through banks and i wanted to understand the process you know i just had that mind where i wanted to understand how does this all work i was spending a lot of time with brokers and at the time they weren't great and i was really getting frustrated so i thought i'm going to get you know i'm going to get to understand uh mortgage broken. So I applied for my CMAP, um, studied that, passed it to be able to do my, you know, not my own mortgages, but to be able to do my own mortgage brokerage. And at the time, uh, a friend of the family said that he had a brokerage and that there was a, a pipeline uh, of fees that had been stuck through some shape or form. And would I be uh, interested in um, loaning them some money? And I, I had a big interest in it. And I said, I loan the money to the, to the company um, while you get yourself out of difficulty, but I want to come in and learn. And um, long story short is I took the money out of a couple of the properties. I put 180 grand, which is quite a lot of money then, um, cash out of these properties into this business as a loan. Um, and the, the long and short of it is this guy stole the money um, and run off with the money. And I'll tell you in a bit what, what he done with it. But um, then what they did is they signed, fraudulently signed the shares over to me and shut the company down. So I lost my money. So, <laughs> so, so, so it, what was interesting in, in to come back full circle to your point about how do we sell the properties? I'd raised that money against a couple of these properties that I said I'd never raise money against. You know, they were unencumbered assets, but I had to pay it back. Timing. This is 2007. So I sell one of the properties that I bought for 80,000 and that property is now selling for 380,000. Yeah. So my naivety, you know, I've had lots of conversations with many people who've been in property a long time, but my naivety was that I just sold it uh, to pay that money back. Obviously, I triggered a capital gains situation uh, of 40%. 
And then I sold another one to pay that. And then it was a domino effect. And, and then the final couple of pieces to the jigsaw session for, you know, people listening is that the mortgages, it was the mortgage crunch, as people called it. So that stopped happening. Uh, then it was also a case of, um, so no mortgage lending. There weren't people doing refurbs, so that wouldn't work for me. Uh, the mortgage company then didn't happen. And yeah, I was selling my properties and, and that was the sort of, Two, it folded into two folded into two thousand and eight, and then yeah, if like a domino effect, I ended up with selling my portfolio, uh, and then the whole thing's yeah another phase of my life really where I lost it all. Wow, and I guess from that lesson, which is a big lesson, what is maybe one or two of the key takeaways that you took from that that the listeners can you know learn from and maybe hopefully not have to go through the same thing. Mm. Okay, a couple of key takeaways. Uh, one was investing in um, a business that I didn't know about. Um, you know, I, I invested my time and loaned money into that. And I didn't understand um, the, the business enough to know that they would be able to do something like that. Naive, you know, I was straight off the street, I'd done well. But at the same time, I didn't understand that. And I remember at the time, a, a long standing family friend of ours, an accountant from um, over in Finchley, said to me, you know, th this is a shark's world, this this kind of stuff and, and keep well away from it. And, I, and, you know, that sort of people call it entrepreneurial spirit. I was like, I'll be fine. I'm going to go for it. Um, because if it works, then I've got access into this. I can then be part of it and um, I'll have my own brokerage. But um, I didn't know that the loan investment into it was going to be you know shares and then they were going to rob the money so that that was big learn um the other one was yeah just just understanding um setting up your business before rather than retrospectively trying to tidy it up you know i i just education experience naivety um i, I put it down to it's, it's the way that I learn, you know, everything that I do now and, and how I share that with people going forward. I, I value the learn um, and it's took me to where I am now. So, yeah, mm. that's pretty much how I, how I view it. And then so once this happened, how did you then recover from it and what did you do to recover from it? Well, um, so it, it, it got a lot worse and, you know, we'd need a couple of hours to discuss it. But it got a lot worse. I mean, we went from the, you know, I would say the sort of proverbial developer type lifestyle where we had the X5s on the drive and we lived in a half and, you know, we walked the kids to school and had time to smell the flowers, you know, that kind of life. Um, to all of a sudden, you know, my, my wife got pregnant or I say she got pregnant, you know, like it was her fault. But it was uh, she got pregnant. We was having a baby. Her mum got ill. Her dad didn't want to be alone. We had to move out of the only uh, house we had was a major asset because I, I couldn't sell anything, uh, you know, in the crunch. I'd sold all my portfolio and now I'm trying to sell my main residence. I couldn't. So we moved out. That was our only income. You know, I was not making any money. And we moved into a two bed um, ex-council property, seven of us. Um, it was insane. But it was Looking back on it, it was fantastic times, but at the time it didn't feel like that. You know, we had my wife's mum who was, um, you know, suffering mentally and and was you know, making the kids laugh, but it was it, it, 
deeply it was quite sad but it was mad times you know um and the kids were really young and didn't know what's happening it was chaotic it was chaotic but uh yeah we we tried to just recoup um, my wife's mum passed away and left some money and we said well, you know the only thing i know is going and doing a development i you know long story short I used the, the inheritance uh, to buy a property down by where my mum lived on, on the East Sussex, in the East Sussex area on the coast. I went down there, bought a property, thought I was getting back on my feet and uh, thought, yeah, I'll, I'll get this back up and running. No problem. Just again, like I wasn't in the space mentally. I didn't have enough money to do it. And I started to fall behind not finishing the project. And, you know, my wife saying, when is this finishing? When are we moving in? I was like, wow. No, I was lying to her, um, saying, yeah, 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 we'll be getting there. And I just couldn't. I couldn't, couldn't cope with it. You know, I, I was in a terrible way looking back on it. And I, I made a call. It was the wrong call. Looking back on it, it was not a clever call. And I knew at the time, I was like, I, I, you know, I needed to rent it out. Half-finished project. My people that I grew up with and I knew they from you know my area as local housing estate, you know, they weren't up to good things. And the the Bottom line is then I knew it was going to be ending tears. Uh, they rented it off me and that was it. They turned it into a cannabis farm. It got discovered. The police come looking for me. Do I know about it? And everyone said, you know, don't say anything. Just deny it, the solicitors. And I just, I'd had enough at that point. I was just like, no, this is the situation. This is what happened. And, and many people have heard me talk about it and it's on my you know, website and stuff. It's a very open conversation because I think it's a turning point for my life and brings me to talking to you is I went to court, told the judge what happened. And they said, yeah, you, you get a, a prison sentence for that. I thought it was going to be six months. Some people said it will be like a what's that suspended sentence. I left the kids behind that morning said, you know, I'll be back. Don't worry. Whatever happens, I'll be back. You know, my kids were six, nine and 23. Um, never left them before. And I got to court and the judge sentenced me to three and a half years in prison. Wow. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you said a couple that's of things. Exactly what I said, but look, it was a turning point. It was, a, it was a massive turning point. The best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And um, yeah, the, just the growth, the learns experience, um, just the change in my being and my life and everything, the path from that sentence, just, just I can't express how uh, valuable that's been. Wow, um, I didn't that that was like I did not expect that twist uh, in the plot. Um, so, ha, so when you so did you go to prison for all three and a half years? Yeah, I so we served about twenty months, nineteen point yeah, nineteen and a half months, twenty months, just under you know just under two years. And like, how was that for you? Especially because, well, I'm not gonna say you chose to go there, but you took the more difficult option, which was to sort of admit you knew what was going on when most people would just say, I don't have a clue. I just thought they were going to rent it. Like, talk me through that. How was prison? It was, it was an experience. That's how I sum it up. It was an experience. It puts you in a, in, in a place where you have to be on your game. You know, you, you're either going to go in there and have, you know, you're going to feel mentally under pressure. Uh, you have to be on your game. Like that, that's the way I would put it. It's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, did you ever go to youth centers or anything like that, Tej, when you were younger mm. or growing up or yeah. around that? 
yeah. you know, like playground stuff. It's like that for adults. Like it's <laughs> it's pretty much like that for adults. Um, not in the fact that it's a playground, but it, the the dynamics of people. Um, and and it yeah, it was. You know, for me, as I was walking into the prison system, I knew uh, that it was a system that had been fine tuned over hundreds of years. I wasn't going to fight that. They know what they're doing, whether it looks like it or not. And I thought I'm going to find the opportunity in it. I'm going to find what they're giving me here. And, yeah, being stripped down uh, at the reception to naked and them taking away your name, giving you a number, saying who you can speak to when you can see your you know, family kids who you share a bunk with, all of that, when you can eat, when you can shower, when you can walk about, you know, outside, they were stripping you down. And I thought, well, they're giving me something, but I don't know what it is. And yeah, they, they, they x-rayed me for a phone inside me. And I was like, this is nuts. Like they're, they're really stripping you down, but there's, there's a game here. And it was at that point, I realized what they'd given me, you know, they'd given me what I needed. They'd given me time. They gave me time to work out what am I doing with the rest of my life? What am I on this planet for? What am I meant to be? What am I meant to be doing? I'm not just here f- for no reason. It's, you know, I'm, I'm here for something, and I was searching for it, but I didn't have time to find it. So now I've got time, right? When that door shuts and you're locked up initially in the first prison for 23 hours a day um, at the dispersal prison, you've got time. Like you've got a lot of time, and you can either sit there moaning, crying, feeling sorry for yourself watching some like four inch telly or you can you can find a, a value in it and and yeah i just i said i'm gonna find a value in it that's 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 amazing because it's a place and i think any place of isolation or any place like that can break people and it does break a lot of people but you kind of took like a monk's approach like a stoic's approach like a a meditative approach to something that is generally quite negative it's not somewhere that we aspire to go um what like ha- how it, it, do you think it's all the experiences in your past life just added up to you being like that's it i'm gonna i'm gonna make something of this or yeah it's a really good point you've just you sort of triggered something in me there because i never thought about that so it's a really good question i think it's I, I was brought up in a family where you get on with it yeah you you get on with it like it there's, there's the, whatever the problem is, you get on with it. My mum had a like a serious issues in her life when she was a kid. She was um, burnt severely, like severely, nearly killed her from uh, her, her skirt catching light when she was six or seven years old. Um, and she was severely, severely burnt for a woman um, growing up with that and psychological, you know, it, it scarred her deeply. And she was put in an orphanage from it. Um, her parents didn't come and collect her from hospital for two years. Like when you have someone like that as, a, as a, effectively a role model, <laughs> you don't really see much else is tough. You know, there's a lot of people out there suffer a lot worse. And I thought, you know, I went into prison and, and I knew my mum had cancer. She was dying. I weren't dying. There wasn't no one dying. Um, I was alive. I, I had freedom. My, pe- my 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 family were out here suffering. You know, they're the ones that were in pain. My kids have to go to school and see that their dad's gone to prison and that be in the paper. Like my kids are six and nine, and that that's suffering. You know, me in there, that, that's not suffering. That's not suffering. If I have to have a a situation where it's you know I'm treated badly or I have to have a fight or whatever. That was my job to prepare for that, you know, and I did six, seven, eight, nine months leading into it. I went and found someone that was 
you know, teaching that for a living, how to defend yourself and got in with the cage fighting guys and let them batter me for seven months on a daily basis. You know, um, that was my job, you know, as, 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 as someone who's let the family down. Um, I, I wasn't I wasn't allowed to moan. You know, I wasn't allowed to see it as, as bad. Um, that's that's how I viewed it. Mm. Very interesting. A lot of strength there. A lot of um, yeah, a lot of a lot of stoicism. Um, just yeah, changing how you perceive things because everyone will perceive that differently. But the way you perceived it is probably the only way to cope in a situation like this and come out better and stronger. So you went to prison. You you came out. Sort of once you'd come out, you know, what was your what was your plan then? What, what do you want to do? Property again or? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the plan, <laughs> it sounds like, well, property again, are you nuts? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the the plan was written inside prison. That, that was it. That's what I spent my time doing. And I mean, hour after hour after hour after hour, you know, I didn't watch clocks. I just just kept doing what I was doing until I, until I cracked what I, was, what I wanted to do. I identified what drives me in my life, uh, what, what ignites me. Um, that was a breakthrough moment. I'll come on to share that with you if, if it's of interest. Um, that lit me up. I also then identified what do I know? What can what can I, I, what lit me up was I wanted to ignite the belief and the potential and the understanding in another human being. I realized that I, I backtracked that to a kid, and that's what I wanted other kids to feel. I wanted them to feel like not the underdog, not that they're they're struggling and suffering. Now I realize it was me that was that person. But when I was in prison, I was just said that that's what I want to do. I want to stop people feeling like they're outcasts or they're not good enough or they can't do something. And that was what, you know, it gets me now emotionally. That's what I want to do with someone. Um, and, and I thought to myself, I'm going to do that with people when I get out. Like, what am I going to do? How, how, what have I got? That's what I want to do with another human being, like me going up to them and asking them that they want me to help them do that. They think I'm a you know, a lunatic. I was like, what, what am I going to bring these people? You know, what have I got? And then I thought, you know, I did all right. You know, from 13 to 27, I'd done all right. You know, I, I was uh, effectively, you know, what people are striving to be now, you know, well off, very, very well off from property. Um, I know how to do it. I know it inside out. I know how to secure investors, raise money. I, I know how to do it. I know how to get uh, deals over and above everyone else, you know, I understood that. So that's what I, I went with. I worked with that. And then I said, I'm going to go back out and I'm going to give that to people. I'm going to share it with them. Um, and I'm going to help people change their life and live a life that they want. You know, I called it initially an extraordinary life. I just feel like people, some people want to live an ordinary life, even at that point. And that's what I decided to do. And, and that's what my focus was. Um, yeah, that, that was pretty much what I, I, you know, mapped out, I, I literally mapped it out, I mapped out the process of how I could do it. Um, and I applied it from in prison. I, I, I put it to work from in prison because I thought if I believe in it and it works, it'll work anywhere. And if it works in prison, it will work when I get out. And that's it. I, I put it to work in prison and uh, we raised £1.4 million from in prison outside. So oh, hold on, let me let us just. Okay. So you're saying you were sat in prison, right? Which automatically puts a negative perception on you by society right um 
especially when it comes to raising money, people are obviously very cautious, but there's just this, there's a stigma in society, of course, with prison and with committing a crime, whatever it is. So how, like, how did you raise that much money from prison? Who was the person on the outside? Like, how did it work, like, physically? Yeah, so it, the the person himself was um, a family member that was a developer. Yeah, that's what they did. They were sorry, they weren't a developer. They were a, a company that worked as a subcontractor for developers. So they they were a construction firm, effectively. And what he'd done is he was really good at his job, really good. And one day he came to visit me and said that he was a bit worried about his business. He wasn't getting enough business. He was feeling a little bit depressed about it and didn't know where the, the next bit of money was going to come from. And that was how it started. That's exactly how it started. But how did you raise it from within prison? So the, the, the concept around it is what I call the value exchange. So if we take this person, he had just finished a, a contract for a really good client, a really wealthy client, someone that was um, involved in the media for people like Marks and Spencers, Kellogg's, etc., that kind of stuff. And he had finished this project for the guy, done his offices, and the guy didn't have any you know more work but loved the project and i just said to him uh, bear in mind i'd mapped this out how to reverse engineer it and i just said to him why don't you go back to the guy and ask him you know what is it he wants to do with his life what is it he wants to achieve now you know where's he going next and uh, and he looked at me like i was nuts you know he wasn't used to that kind of soft fact conversation i said just go back and find out what it is he came back on another visit and he said, I spoke to the guy, he said his dream is to get into, you know, L Decoration, that kind of magazine, L Decor or one of those on um, a wallpaper magazine with a, pro- a property that, that showcases um, and it's his. And then I said, good, go back to him and ask him how much he's prepared to invest to do that, to make it happen. And if he says to you an amount, ask him, does he want to do it and that you'll deliver it? Hmm. And he, and, and, he, and, he, and he agreed and said, here, have a meal. He said, he said, he said I want to create a property that looks like X. And, and then he asked him, you know, what would that look like financially? And he said, I'd go up to a million quid um, to buy it. And then, yeah, he came back again and said, yeah, he said he'd write me a check for a million quid if I could make it happen. And then I said, go back and just tell him, you know, there's your source of project. Um, if it goes up to a bit more, would he be prepared to put a bit more to make it happen? And that's what happened. It went up to 1.4. Wow. So then when you came out and you were applying this, talk us through some of like the achievements in terms of how much you raise and bits like that. Because obviously we've yeah. been through your challenges and failures, but I also want to mm. share that you did come out and then smash it when you came, <laughs> you came out. Yeah. Good point, Ted. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, so yeah, I, I effectively, that wasn't my project. It wasn't you know anything to do with me. I, I did get out of prison to go there on a daily basis and work and, and you know, it was all great. And, and that was that. That was up and running. Um, we then decided uh, that we were going to use this, me and my daughter, my oldest daughter, I came out and I said, look, I've got this process. I'm going to go to work on it in the local area. It's going to feel odd. It's not going to feel like we're working, but trust me, it works. Um, we had no, Ted, we had no internet. We had no laptops. You know, it was it was proper broke. Um, we, and I went up to the library, um, to the job center part, um, paid a fiver for the day to, to seek jobs. And uh, we started sourcing projects. And um, so that was how it started. I 
knew that we had to solve a problem somewhere. So I spoke to the agents in the area where I were and said, what's the biggest problem that you've got in a minute? And they said, broken deals. Um, it's predominantly an older generation area. So they don't like it when deals break. They got their heart set on, you know, July the 24th. Um, they're moving. They're packed. They're ready to go. You know, they they don't want a chain to break. Um, and, and then I just said, uh, if we were able to... Um, fix the chain so they didn't break and we would be the buyer so it kept the chain together but you you know negotiated a 20 percent discount for us um would that be of interest to your um buyers and they you know every time one came up they said yep um these guys would accept 20 percent discount to get the deal done it wasn't massive projects. It was a you know 150, 250 pound, a thousand pound project. So 20% wasn't huge, but it was enough for me then to go to London to people I used to work with and say, guys, do you want to get on a buy to let area that's up and coming um, where there's 20% off the actual um, market value? And they were like, yeah, if you can make that happen, I'll do it. And that was it. We we. We bridged between the two. We stopped the chains from breaking. We got a discount. We went to the uh, to the investors, and um, basically just built portfolios for people. We, um, but we turned over about three and a quarter million in eighteen months. Wow! So you you effectively deal sourcing? Yeah, yeah, effectively, but you know, with a little bit more. So you, you you're deal sourcing, but you're we regard it as managing the process together. Most deal sourcing is a deal sourcer will give you the project. You've got to do the rest. You know, they've given you a, a deal. We, we use this in the investor circle development. So I always highlight to people, don't, don't bring a deal to the table. You, anyone can bring a deal. Right? My son, 14, can bring a deal. We can go on right move and bring a deal. You don't want to bring a deal. You want to bring an opportunity that solves a problem for someone. So if it's an investor that's in, you know, works in, um, I don't know, works in London in, in the post office and, you know, he's using his life savings to buy his first buy to let, what's the problems he's got? Time, he can't get time. He can't travel down. He doesn't know the area. Solve all of them problems for him, you know. Bring an opportunity where you say, look, it's all there, ready to go. Everything you're looking for is done. Um, is this something you would want to be part of? Bring them an opportunity, you, you know, you'll, you'll raise more money, you'll do more business than anyone else. That's a really good point. And I think a lot of sources could, a lot, you know, sources now are doing that, some of them. Uh, but I think like bringing that whole package is important because like you said, if if you're trying to sell to sort of normal people or even any investor, like they may not know the area, they may not know prices, compare anything at all. So the more you can do to package it, as you know like here's all your you know frequently answered questions about this deal this area everything you're going to sell quicker you're going to sell more um you know. Ted, you, you, this is you know you're sparking something here that i think is really really valuable and powerful that you've highlighted for for listeners at any level i i use this element in you know projects we've got going on at the moment where it's an individual who works at Jaguar Rover and wants to buy his first deal and can't see why anyone would work with him. He's not a developer and can't raise money. I, I worked with that guy. He, he's done one project and in the first 12 months, he's earned, not, not, not turned over, not raised, he's earned clear £300,000. Now, that's a serious amount of money. And how we do it, whether it's him or the guys that we're working with to do the 30 million raise, it's the same part. It's you don't start with 
the deal. You know, this is where people I experience go wrong. You know, I call it the DIY frame. Most people start with a deal. They go and find it. Then then they go and look for an investor and try and sell the deal to the investor. Yeah. And then then they tell them what, you know, what they're getting for themselves. That's deal is D, I is investor and Y is you. Go the other way around. You know, identify what you bring to the investor that solves their problem at such an opportunity that they don't need to go to anyone else or think uh, uh, of investing with anyone else. But the way you do that is you go to the investors and understand what they want, not what you bring. What do they want? Then you go and get the deal that works for them. Then you bring them an opportunity. Did you, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like they say, you know, when you're public speaking, like, no, you know, it's not about what you want to talk about. It's about what the audience want to know and what they want to hear. Um, and it's the same thing. I think, you know what, property is just generally an old school business. Look at conveyancing. Look, everything is just so outdated. So I think it's easy to fall into that outdated thing of like the DIY, whereas you should be more like, you know, fintech and shortage and hipster about it and be like, hey, put the customer first. Um, so that was your deal sourcing element. Did you get back into like buying properties for yourself? What was your approach yeah. to then do that? Yeah, so so from there we we partnered up with a member of the family. We tried to do some work. We started buying some, um, you know, pubs uh, to turn into flats. Um, I bought a few pro- projects out of auction, you know, outside the room. Um, I started, yeah, just using different tactics and techniques. Um, one of the key things that I decided to do was um, from my learns from from experience was to make sure I always had a mentor always educated and changed my circle of people um, and that had a, a significant difference that brought me into a you know to the circles that we're in and we, we've come to meet through now um, so I, I got into that I, I started to go initially to my first sort of uh, interaction was to go into a big massive network because i wanted to change the circle of people um i chose to do that through progressive i found that their network was phenomenal um for me you know it was they 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 opened many many doors i won an award there which i'm not into awards but it escalated my profile and allowed me to do you know a lot more Um, i won that for raising the most money in that in that 12 months i was I think it was 20, I want to say 21, 22 million. I can't remember. That's, now. that's a lot of zeros now, Stuart. So, um, ha, ha, okay, and that's in a year. Okay. Now, this is this is the bit that people are going to prick their ears up again about. So, let's talk about that. So, oh, okay, so, so let's obviously just clarify again with everyone. At this point, you had a lot of property experience. You had a lot of life experience. So, I don't want people saying, oh, blah, 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 whatever. You all have, we all have our own situations and this was yours, right? So of course your background helped you, like naturally, you can't help that. So 21 million in a year, I mean, how? I, I suppose that the, the focus was on identifying um, the, the people that were looking to do something um, but the problem was they didn't know who to do it with or, or where to go. Um, that that was key. It was, you know, I, I focused on, um, I call this process, who knows who knows someone. Okay, so let me just break that down a bit. The first thing I did is say, who am I looking for? So I was looking for people that wanted to spend 500, 1 million, 3 million, that kind of thing, you know, um, to invest. And then I, I raised that 
as as uh, as I as I started to to deliver it. So I asked myself, who who do I know who knows someone that would have that kind of money, want to invest that level, but isn't able to do it? So so I'm going to give you one example, and and that was um, I went to someone who was um, working with some footballers. He was managing some footballers and spoke to him. I met him through a surveyor, a friend of ours, and uh, I looked for that type of person. I said, I went to the surveyor friend and said, do you know anyone who would love to get involved in property, um, has access or knows people that want to do it, but maybe not not doing it? And I said, you know, if, if we get it to work on that level, then I'll bring you in on it as well. And we would share. And that was it. Incentivized him. He went, spoke to this guy that he knew. So many people know so many people. Um, and that was it. I went and spoke to that guy. It wasn't masses, but it was three million quid they wanted to invest. I can't say who they are, but it was two two people together. They'd done a few deals. None of it was profitable. Had pain there, had a problem. Uh, went and spoke to them and identified what it is they didn't want to repeat and what their concerns were. And that's what I'd done. It brought them an opportunity. So that was one example. Um then that that was almost repeatable, but not necessarily with footballers. We didn't work with any other f- footballers. Um, and that was the process. That was it. So, okay, what interest rate did you give them out of interest on that three mil? I never start with an interest rate. So always I have a, a clear philosophy that is people before percentages, because. If I come to talk to you, Tej, about what your plans are and what your goals are, and I have a preconceived idea about a percentage, I'm attaching myself to the outcome before we even know whether we're going to work together. So if you say to me that your goals are you want to uh, generate 10 grand a month, this is a typical one, I want to generate 10 grand a month over the next 12 months. And I would say, okay, and what do you have to, uh, as an appetite, as an investment appetite to make that happen? And you'll go, oh, no, I've got 50K. I'll go, well, that might be a bit difficult to do. And you say, well, I have, if I could achieve that 10 grand, I've actually got a bit more and I've got some friends and I've got some. So that's where I start. I start with understanding what you're trying to achieve. And then I reverse it back and say what that needs to be at in order to make sure we deliver all of this. So there would be a, a mixture in there of, um, JVs in the true sense of their share, the risk and the reward. And there would be some loan elements uh, in there as well. And and the loan elements, I've, you know, I, I will come on to talk about a project that I've just coming out of the back end of, which is a significant size, but it's been the biggest, most painful project and, and most dangerous project I've done. Um, and, and that you know, again, it ranges from people that helped in the early days to get it up and running that were getting 20 percent uh, on their money, uh, all the way through to ten percent, eight percent. You know, we do some projects now where people are over the moon with six percent, like over the moon. Um, but that's because we we apply a different model. The risk is lower. I know their appetite. Uh, it's all you know, all relevant to what the project looks like. You know, if someone's just starting out and that investor's investing in them, they know that there's a massive risk with them. They should know because all projects have a potential going wrong. If, you, if you've been investing in property or developing in property long enough, you're going to have had a project go wrong. If you haven't, you're, you're about to. So all, all projects at some point, you know, they go wrong. And it's if it's an early invest, someone who's a, you know, 
got into property now and they've only been doing it one year, two years, three years, and they haven't had a problem, uh, then the investor would, you'd need to let them know that that could be the problem we have could be with your money. And so if they're JVing, they would be rewarded at a percentage rate that reflects that um, because they're taking a risk. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And yeah, it, it, projects always go wrong somewhere, somehow. Um, so then going back to the actual raising of it. Okay. So you know, you rinse and repeated that model, but there's there's more to it, right? So for someone who... So let's say someone's starting out, which is probably most sort of people listening is sort of anywhere from zero to, I don't know, five, six years into property. Let, let's take the lower end, sort of maybe new or a year in property. How can they, you know, raise even just a million pounds in a year? Like, can you give us a step-by-step process that they could use or, or bits and bobs that they can leave this podcast yeah. and say, let's do it? Yeah, I'll give us some... some... It's, it's obviously a dangerous thing to talk about because you know raising a million pound is serious um so let's let's start with something like someone wants to do their you know the the second or third project or even their first yeah let's go with that um a lot of people are, are rightly scared or uncomfortable with a million pound um so you know if, if we said 50k 100k 150 around that sort of uh, area um it's the same process as as i would suggest using for a million as it is for 100k and and the i'm just going to share what works for us i'm sure there's a thousand other ways and lots of people do it in their own way which is you know great and everyone's different for, for me what we do is we 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 start with the person, and I mean bring the person back down to them, and we, we look to identify what is it, what's the value you're bringing to the table? And quite often people say, oh, I don't have any property experience, I don't have any value, um, therefore I don't know where to start. And that's, that's wrong. Um, people coming into property now bring a huge amount of experience and knowledge and expertise and contacts they bring so much Um, the reason why i say identify what you have what's the value of you first is because then you can look for someone that has what you don't have and you can plug into them and bring them what they don't have and that's the missing piece of the jigsaw so the the three layers that we would typically work with with a client are the first layer is your your key drivers your you know people talk about your why or your vision you can call it what you want but the way i like to look at it if this gets really really difficult or um you know we want to understand how we get you motivated what are you doing this for what's driving you and if it's to live a certain way if it's to you know change the world whatever it is it doesn't matter how grand or how uh, personal and almost selfish it is doesn't matter understand what that is first and foremost that's really important uh, and that's important because that's going to be your driver. And people like to understand that. Th- then the second layer is what are your goals and objectives? So if you want to earn a certain amount of money uh, over a certain amount of period and a timeline, understand that. Because what you're doing here is you're building effectively your business plan that you're going to take to others and they're going to be able to identify how they fit into it. Yeah. So so that's layer two. Layer three is you said this is what your drivers are in one. You've said in number two, um, your goals and objectives are 10 grand a month in the next 12 months. I want to do 10 properties, whatever it might be. So the third layer is what's the model? What's the strategy? How are you going to achieve that? 
and make sure that that stacks up. If you're going to achieve 10 grand a month over X amount of time, then then make sure it stacks up. Make sure make sure it's, it completely makes sense and is achievable in timescales, in team, in the ability to source the projects. Uh, financially, does it stack up? You know, really, really know your stuff. Um, and then the final piece of that is that that's what you bring to the table, right? That's what you're bringing. You might not have the money to do that, but here's where you bring the opportunity. If you bring all of that to the table of someone that doesn't have time, access to opportunities, and or experience, you're going to bring that to the table. And they will put the money towards it in order to get access to what you're doing. Mm. Wise words. And I think also what you, you know, what echoes and runs throughout what you just said is the confidence to know that you are bringing an opportunity, you are bringing, if you're giving someone two, three, four, five, six, whatever times the bank, that in itself is an opportunity like that, you know, they're not really necessarily going to get anywhere else. So you have to be kind of, and when you start out, you're like, oh, but I'm getting a whole house. But it's like, yeah, they're getting four times the bank. So they don't want a house. They don't want the, the bullshit that we want to deal with. So yeah, it, it's kind of knowing that you actually are giving an opportunity, which it, at the start is difficult. And until you get the money, sometimes you don't actually realize you're like, oh, we're both winning. This is, this is epic. So you know, kind of before and throughout, you've mentioned like investor circle. Now, like how, like, is there a prime position that like we as property investors, developers can be in where we just have six or so people who we always reach out to, they got money, boom, 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 it's job done. Yeah. Like, is that what the investor circle is? Absolutely. That's exactly it. So we, we, We've looked at it and used it in many ways with many people. There's minimum of five. The, the, the worst position you can be in is have one investor or one source of something because you can't negotiate, you can't position, you can't rely on them. If, if you go all the way to the line and then that person can't uh, perform, you're stuck. So minimum five people because if one's busy, one's funded, one's wife said they're not doing it, uh, you know, you've still got lives. So a personal circle of five, ideally 10 maximum. So we, we've just done one recently for someone and they've got eight and they've got all the money they're funded for the rest of as many projects as they can do now. They're, they're maxed out. So it works with eight people. But yeah, minimum five, you're right, Tedge, and max 10. That is a prime place to be. Because for me, from my experiences, when I didn't make money and when I lost money is when I didn't have access to money. But, you know, when you've got money, you could look, this is the most powerful thing about getting your money ready first. It's the missing piece of your business. Because when you get the money ready first, you can spend in any strategy, in any model, in any market at any time. Think about that. So if you're in HMOs and it becomes saturated, but you, you've got buying power and you want to buy into uh, development, land development, land planning, whatever it is. You can go to people that are going to be 100 times better than you'd ever be because they've done it and that's all they've done all their life. And do you know what's the one thing they're going to want more than anything else? Access to money. So if you bring the money, you can lead in with some of the top people in the industry. That's, that's a guarantee. True. Yeah. And I think what you said there is really important. And, and I tell people this because they say, oh, right, I've, I personally have a pot of 40 grand, therefore... I can only buy this strategy in this area. And I say, yeah, that, that's correct. 
but you're sort of basing your future plans off your current self. But, you know, you should base your future plans off your future self because in three weeks or whatever, you could raise half a million pounds and then you can invest, you know, wherever with whatever strategy. So, but it's tricky to do that, isn't it? It's tricky to like, you know, say, oh yeah, I'll have this much in a few weeks, right? Oh yeah, I, so I don't start with the money. I start with the problem. I, I look, I, I call it toe to toe. So someone out there has got T O E, and you bring T O E. So there's going to be someone out there with money that doesn't have time, access to opportunities. They may have have experience, which will be good, but it doesn't matter if they do or don't. So you've got to bring someone your your own time, your access to opportunity. And your or someone else's experience to the table, they'll spend with you. It, don't start with the money. Start with the. You could go in and work with someone who doesn't have time but got a lot of money. We, we see it time after time after time. There's people out there who just want to get on with. They know how to make money and they're making big money, but they haven't got time to come away from that and start to invest or develop. Or they haven't got time. So give them the time. Bring them the opportunities. Remember the word opportunity, not deal. They don't, don't put a deal in front of one of these guys, their head will fry. Bring an opportunity that solves all the problems they've got. They're going to spend with you. So it's not about how much you raise. It's about the problems that you solve for someone who wants to spend more money. Mm, I like that. So tell us about that very painful deal that you just mentioned before. Yeah, it's uh, so you spoke earlier on oh you asked me sorry about earlier on about when um i where did i go next and so um what i wanted to do was i wanted to take my experience knowledge connections contacts and i felt like i i knew i knew by to let like inside out i was this is a dangerous thing for anyone out there. If you if you know something really well, like you've done 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 of them, and you're feeling bored, be very careful of this. Because I felt like buy to lets was done, um, legislation changes, there was no more meat on it, everyone was buying them at a ridiculous price, couldn't find any angle. It was time to level up, scale up, get ahead. And I did. I took some serious players from my uh, life around construction, you know, big guys, big, big guys in the industry um, at levels that have been doing tower blocks and stuff in, in central London. They, they've been doing it all their life, you know, big, big consultants. JV'd with them to bring them into the team and went and sourced the project. Uh, we bought it when everyone was nervous about PD was going to go out of the window. We went and paid someone for some you know some consultation we took a, a gamble uh, we bought this property an, an ex-office building in um bournemouth a minute from the seafront a really good location bought it for a million quids you know bought it on an option uh, put the money down and had like 30 days to complete um bought it for a million quid all all day long no matter how we did the numbers and how we conservative we were and it was a million pound profit and a and a 10 month project all day long, like we stress tested it and stress tested it and stress tested it. The long and short of it is that 14 months later, we were only going through planning. So, yeah. And then when we did get through planning, it was just is a constant. Um, when we did get through planning, um, then Grenfell happened. Then they came back and said, you've got to reapply for planning because you got cladding. Whilst we reapplied for planning, that took another six months. So no one could get any work done. Uh, the 
everyone left the site. We were still paying the interest. The interest was backing up. Uh, we'd started some of the project. We'd unlocked some of the financing. Um, then when we did get back to work again, we had issue after issue. We had to go, you know, the fire regs were were rightly so now but you know they were off the, the scale we had to change corridors we had to put uh sprinkler systems we had to put fire shoots in we had to put release valves in we had to change the cladding it was and then when we went to the cladding guys they said yeah six month waiting list because everyone's changing the cladding so basically at, at one point at one point edge i was um i was selling anything that i any assets that we'd we'd accumulated from the turnaround of coming out of prison i was now selling to make sure that the investors were not in any way in danger um and that's continued at one point last christmas i was paying so my interest on on the on the cap the interest cap on it so when you're paying your your finances on a big development uh, they they'll allow you to roll it up to a certain level because the job rolled on so long we'd hit that cap and they were like you've got to pay some of the interest so i was paying 5 grand a month which was doable i was working hard to pay that 5 grand and then it got to 10 then it got to 15 uh and then it got to 20 and at last christmas and last Christmas, I was paying 25 grand every four weeks. And I can tell you that four weeks comes around quick. Like, woo, it comes around quick, you know. And, and, and my wife's looking at me going, we don't have any money in the account anymore. You know, you, I, I was mentoring at one point something like 21 people to try and keep it, keep it going um, and doing the project. It, it was insane. The pressure on the family was crazy. Um, but all the time, like, I had a duty to protect the investors. They've been really good to us. And over and above everything else, like, we, we, we had – you know, we had 28 units to sell and then Brexit, we couldn't sell the units. We completed final, you know, practical completion on Christmas Eve. So there was going to be a month. It was just like everything was against it. Um, yeah, the slowdown and then the, the election. And it's just been a, an, an absolute yeah, a journey and a half for everybody. And there's been, you know, the investors have been good. You know, they've had to put up with a lot and they've been concerned and, you know, they've agreed to work with me while I get them secure their capital because you know we, we understand that that's fundamental and yeah it's been it's been an it's been a journey and a half but um I would say you know you're aware of it Tej I'm sure that you know a couple of people this year they were in that situation and they committed suicide um and that's that's you know when you when you take property to the other end it's a dangerous game you know if you don't know how to manage your way through the minefield at sometimes it's a dangerous dangerous situation because it's pressure it's serious serious pressure you know i remember at times looking at my family and my wife and that and they were it's a family business you know it was having the, the adverse effect so yeah we've, we've we've managed to turn that around we've got four units left to three units there's one sell looks like it's selling today three units left to sell the investors you know they get that they're going to uh, work with us and, and ultimately i'll be paying a few of them back out of my own pocket there'll be a loss on the project but uh, hopefully you know we can we we'll absorb that live to fight another day you know i'm working on other projects that are then supporting that i learned from it that i have to go out and do projects that are hugely de-risked hugely de-risked and that again is a bit like the learns from you know prison the learns from this project has been what developments I get involved with and where I invest and, and the value of that to people that then I build investor circles for as a as a consultant is huge because it stops them ever walking into that. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's that's pretty much a, a summary. Your you, your stress tolerance is is huge, <laughs> because, I mean, that's a lot of interest a month. Like to, and to have to then sell assets which you've worked hard to buy, to source, to keep, to maintain, but you know you have no other choice. I think like, it's a lesson. But it's also like a warning for people listening who, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, right, I want my first project to be building 10 units from land. Boom. Big, you know, big stuff. And that's great. And that's lovely. And it's all anything is possible. But it's good you, you say this because look how much experience you have. But you're about to post a loss on this deal. Now, most people would say, oh, but it's got you know so many years. There's no way, he, you know, he'd make a loss. But like that is reality and I think for people listening yes you want to do big deals yes you want to make hundreds whatever millions after you know building stuff but maybe have a little baptism by fire with some buy to let some HMO some boring stuff just just to kind of scratch and and strengthen your armor right absolutely well said you know that patience is the word I'm going to use be patient, yeah, you know, where, I don't know what the words people use nowadays, whether we want to term them entrepreneurial or, you know, uh, you know, driven. Entrepreneurs by, uh, purely by the pure essence of what it's about is they're trying to evolve, they're trying to develop, they're trying to create, they're trying to move and grow. And as part of growing and learning is is failing. And be aware that that build failure into what you're doing, not to fail, but when you do, how you overcome it and grow from there. Um, Because it's a major, major uh, asset to you to be over to be able to overcome it. You know, this is what I say to people that we uh, work with who are building investor circles. Go to your investors and make sure you get the right, you know, I say the right money. What I mean by the right money is people to understand the risk, people to understand what it's going to feel like if it goes wrong, what you can do to overcome it. But if all of it fails, how, where does it leave them in their life? And if they can't cope with that, then they're not your right investor. But if they're the kind of investor that go, I take a risk on that, you know, I'll do that. You know, they got to look at, there's a reason why uh, banks write off losses and uh you know the tax man understands that he has to allow for losses in your businesses because there are losses it happens um and a lot of the i'm going to say new new people coming into property you know they're very switched on they're very clever people i think there's a little bit of it won't go wrong for me it will and it's it's just knowing that beforehand and having the ability to adapt and pivot and get yourself out of it is is vital. So yeah, well, well, point well raised. One hundred percent. So my last question to you so is: so you obviously mentor people now. Mentoring, education, training, especially in property, is a is a minefield. <laughs> it is, it's very tricky to spot who owns a Lamborghini, who rents it, who's yeah. real, who's not. So, yeah. I don't know. Do you have like I don't know top three quick tips on like how someone can identify? who their mentor could be and maybe when is the right time to get a mentor yeah great question great question i i feel like having a mentor is vital i i do believe it you know i i, I just feel that you should have a mentor um but the question you you, you fundamentally ask in there is uh, a tip about who or or yeah who i i, I 
have this question a lot and I feel that people should start with themselves. It's a bit like if you go shopping for a car, a house, a pair of trainers, whatever it is, Ted. It's like, what do you want? What do you need? What do you want it for? And, and, and what are you looking for? Because what we tend to do is look for the golden ticket for going with someone that's going to sell us something that's going to allow us to hit a target. And, and that's because there's an element of need. And a lot of people are just trying to, to survive. You know, they want to hit what I call oxygen levels, pay the bills, uh, live a life where they're not in a day job. Uh, and try and get on you know that's what their first phase is so what is it that you need you know who do you need it from not not the ticket that they're selling you know not the uh i don't know do the big developments or land planning forget all that understand you what do you need who do you work best with um what are you looking for and and understand that the root what you what you would value and that, that's how I look at it. You know, what is it you're shopping for? And then that will give you a better shopping list, a better criteria of how you go and find the person. Then like anything else, do your due diligence, meet them, have a chat with them. If, you know, ask them simple questions like what, when have you failed and what did it look like and how did you overcome it and where are you at now? And if you feel like in a gut feeling that they're authentic, like genuinely authentic, and you connect with them and you feel you're going to learn something off them, you make the decision. That's it. That's that's what I would go with. Okay. I like that. Amazing. So I think this has been a a very interesting podcast with some, some turns and some twists that I did not expect, um, which the listeners probably can gather by my uh, my voice in some parts. And I think you've shared some really important information, some warnings, which we all need, um, and some some lessons from failures, which again, like, it happens, that's life, that's business, that's property, it will happen, it's just a case of when and how bad it will happen. So, if people want to get a hold of you or just, you know, keep up to date with what you're doing, is there a place they should go? Yeah, Ted, I, you know, I've slowed down over the last few months with um, posting and and, and uh, Facebook and social media because I have a duty to the investors right now to make sure that um, I'm giving that all my attention. But um, I have a, uh, you know, just a personal Facebook page, which is Stuart Melody, S-T-U-A-R-T, and then Melody with two L's. Um, I have a Facebook group as well, Stuart Melody Raising Finance. It's, again, it's not very active, um, but that's where I am. I'm on LinkedIn as well. But if anyone wants, you know, to... Uh, get in touch personally they can get in touch with me shows my daughter and pa which is pa at stuartmelody.com and yeah always happy to share what we're up to what we're focusing on now um yeah be a pleasure amazing thanks again Stuart. pleasure Tej. thank you so much it was a pleasure having a chat if you like this podcast connect with tej on facebook linkedin and youtube for more great content